We've hit two really important passages in the Gospel of Mark. They're all important, of course, but uh, just two crucial moments. And it's good you're here today, and can I encourage you to be here again next week for these. Today, the triumphal entry, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Next week, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus going into the temple. Remember, overturning the tables, driving out the money changes, halting the sacrifices, all of that sort of stuff. Two really important things. The whole action in Mark is just building toward the cross, toward Jerusalem, toward his final destiny. It's getting more and more exciting. And so we are in Mark 11. Thank you, Fiona, for uh, that reading this morning. I thought I was being so organized this morning that I accidentally organized two people to do the Bible reading. So uh, they had to arm wrestle for it this morning. No, they just, we just sorted it out. But um, we, we, we just thought we were being super organized there. And we're a little bit too organized for our own good. Mark 11. Does anyone remember the 1995 America's Cup? The good old days? Yes, yes, you remember. Peter Blake and Russell Coots before he became public enemy number one. The day, this was the days of black magic, you remember? The days of the Red Sox campaign. Uh, the days when, we, it was in San Diego, but we won 5-0. And that wasn't even the best part. The best part was that the Australian boat sunk. It was, you know, it was like God himself had ordained the whole, the whole regatta. It was just amazing. And I remember I was in school at the time, and uh, when, when, when the team got home, they had that huge ticker tape parade up Queen Street, and me and a few mates got the day off school. I, I can't remember whether we had permission or not, but we took the day off school and went and, and we perched ourselves on the edge of a building on the corner of Aotea Square and Queen Street and we just watched this whole procession coming up. It was amazing, just the convoy of cars, just streams of coloured ticker tape all through the air and this great ceremony of speeches when they finally got to uh, Aotea Square itself. I'd never seen anything like it. Just an amazing occasion. Now think for a minute, if you had transported someone from a different culture and a different time into that occasion, you transported them onto the edge of that parade, looking out at what was happening. Uh, what would they have made of it? Someone that didn't know anything about New Zealand culture, didn't know anything about the America's Cup, didn't know what we were doing and why we were doing it. What would they have thought of all that? Probably be quite confused. They might have pieced the basic idea together. They, they probably would have figured out these are important people, somehow they're being honoured, but why are they holding this big trophy if they even knew it was that in the air? Why are people throwing coloured ribbon? At them. Some of the images, some of the symbols probably would have been quite lost on them. And that's a bit like it is for us looking at this story in Mark 11. We've got this uh, narrative about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and, and you pick up the basic idea uh, through reading it, but there's a lot of stuff in here that we just struggle with, a lot of the images, a lot of the symbols, because we're not first century people. Specifically, we're not first century Jews. We don't read it with those eyes. We don't hear it with those ears. And so some of the nuance gets a bit lost. We need to do a little bit of unpacking to get to the bottom of it. And, and really the key to understanding uh, at least some of what's going on here is to understand that this whole event of Jesus coming into this, um, this city happened during the Feast of Passover. Just to situate this in the, in the whole ministry of Jesus, this is the beginning of Jesus' final week. This is the beginning of what we call Passion Week. Jesus is really on a, on a fast track now to the cross, and he's coming into Jerusalem, spends this whole next week there before finally being crucified. And this whole week is, is um, the week of Passover. It's a week when Jews celebrated God bringing them out of Egypt. 
and bringing them into their own land, bringing them into a land that he had for them. So it was very much a celebration of Jewish identity, Jewish freedom, the fact that the Jews were God's chosen people. They were the elected ones. They were the ones whom God had special purposes for. And they would every year celebrate this huge festival and do all kinds of things to commemorate this incredible act of freedom that God constituted Israel as a nation way back in the Sinai wilderness and coming out of Egypt. By the first century, though, Israel celebrating Passover as an occupied people. They're celebrating Passover under the fist of Rome. And even in Jerusalem, you can imagine that as these people were having a great party, they're doing that with Roman soldiers lined along the streets, watching and just seeing if anyone's going to cause any trouble. Rome was in charge, and there was absolutely no mistaking it. And so here is Israel trying to have this great festival of national pride, and yet they're doing it in the face of their oppressors. They're doing it in the face of their persecutors. And so in a lot of ways, uh, Passover in the first century had become a really anti-Roman type of celebration, very anti-imperial kind of thing, where they would really be shaking their fist at the empire and kind of the show of national pride in the face of the persecutors. So they would wave these palm branches around, and really that was like a Jewish flag. It's the equivalent of waving around your national flag in the face of of another country, in the face of your overlords, in the face of the people that were keeping you under an iron fist. And they would sing these songs, these psalms, uh, where we get these words, Hosanna, blessed is the coming of our king, the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And, and we hear Hosanna, and we think of a worship song, right? You probably know worship songs that have that word Hosanna in it. Uh, in fact, you know what that word literally means? It means save us now. It's the cry of a persecuted people to their God, crying out, save us now. Save us from these tormentors. Save us from these Roman dogs who are in our land and shouldn't be, these filthy Gentiles who should be getting out. Save us now. It was a cry of a people for a saviour, for a deliverer. And they would have these festivals. They would have these parties. And often, Passover was a time. All of, all of the Jewish festivals really were times when tempers would flare. They were really political events. They were times when sometimes people got a bit overzealous. And they were times marked, Josephus tells us, they were times marked by bloodshed sometimes. And they were rioting. And the Romans were mercilessly quick to come and shut down any act of resistance against the empire. And they would step in and they would stamp it out. They would take lives if they needed to take lives to make sure that there was no threat to the Pax Romana, to the peace of Rome. Peace at the end of a sword. So that was the nature of what's going on here. It was highly charged. Emotions are running high. There's a lot of zealous nationalism that's going on. And in the middle of this whole festival, Jesus rides on a donkey. Jesus rides into the middle of all that on a donkey. What's going on there? See, we look at this. I don't know what it's called in your Bible. Mine's got a heading here that says, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a king. And sometimes we think of the story and it's called the triumphal entry. Have you heard that? The triumphal entry. In fact, really what's happening is about the opposite of that. It's basically the anti-triumphal entry. Because even though it looks to us like a great royal procession, and it looks like Jesus is this great victor and he's coming and people are celebrating and they're singing songs, the, the bottom line is kings don't ride donkeys. They just don't. Jesus coming in, that would be like the prime minister arriving to an official event in a, in a Morris Minor. It didn't happen. It's just completely unbefitting of of the title of a king, of the title of a a dignitary. Kings rode great war horses. 
They rode chariots. They had soldiers beside them. They had people with spears and swords. This was the nature of a king, not someone riding a donkey. And you would think that if Jesus was organized enough to get himself a donkey, surely he could have got himself a big horse. Surely he could have got himself a war horse if he'd wanted to. If he'd wanted that, he could have found a robe. He could have found a crown. He could have orchestrated all of this, but he doesn't. He rides in on a donkey. And the key to understanding this whole passage, I think, is to understand that it's a scene full of irony. If you don't mind writing in your Bibles, write irony somewhere in there. Because if you don't get that, if you don't pick up that there's, this whole thing is just incredibly ironic, uh, you, you're going to come out with an interpretation that's, that's, that's at best shallow and at worst just wrong. Because Jesus in doing this and Mark in telling this story is just filling this whole scene up with irony. You know what irony is? You learned this in English class back in school, remember? When there's a difference between what is said and what is meant. When there's a difference between what is done and what is meant. So if I say to you, is this as clear as mud? On one hand, I'm saying, I'm suggesting it's clear. But on another hand, by using the metaphor of mud, I'm suggesting that it's not clear at all. Two different meanings that work against each other. I'll give you another example of irony. Uh, there was an organization in the States few decades ago called the American Organization for Toy Safety. And they produced these little badges to promote toy safety. Uh, these badges contained mercury, they had sharp edges, and they could be easily swallowed by children. They had to recall the entire lot. <laughs> That's irony, you see? Two levels of meaning. On one level, an organization promoting toy safety. On another level, doing something that undermines toy safety. One final example, because irony is so much fun. Check out this example. Uh, on screen. Sure, you have five degrees and work for NASA, but you still need to use toys to make your point. <laughs> you see? On one hand, a, a, an intellectual scientist. On the other hand, a, a little snide remark that undercuts that and makes them look a bit silly. Irony is a great way of just gently mocking, <laughs> gently satirizing, gently ridiculing something else. And this scene is absolutely brimming with irony. There's two levels going on here. On one level, Jesus is clearly intending us to get the point that this is a royal procession. This is the entrance of a king. He wants you to pick that up. He is coming as a king. This is a royal procession. This is a VIP. He's coming. This is a coronation in a sense. It's the arrival of a great king. And yet everything in this story seems to work against that. He's coming in on a donkey the lowliest of the animals he could possibly ride. People are singing these songs to him that just reflect the fact they're only a persecuted people, that they're, they're not actually in charge of anything or anyone. And even when the story ends, you look at the end of it, it's so anticlimactic. It doesn't really get anywhere. He gets into Jerusalem and you're expecting maybe he's going to start a riot, maybe he's going to uh, somehow take a throne, maybe he's going to make a speech and he gets in there and he looks around and it was already late, so he says, hey, anyone hungry? Let's go to Bethany and take off. Maybe come back tomorrow. It's just the whole thing just kind of, well, well, surely there's more here. And he goes to the temple the next day, yes. But at this point when everyone's like, okay, you're going to take the throne, you're going to be the king. Oh, it's kind of late. Let's go. Let's get some dinner. <laughs> so what is this? What kind of king is this? And that's precisely the point. What kind of king is this? That's what Jesus is doing. By using this irony, he's wanting to make a point, a dramatic point, about what his kingship is like about what this kingdom is like that he's come to set up. And it's a kingdom full of irony. It's a kingdom that is, that is completely ironic in its very nature. Jesus is coming in as a great triumphal king, and yet he's coming in and his kingship is about humility. And it's about weakness. And it's about lowliness. 
The only prophecy in the Old Testament about this event is in Zechariah 9. It says, Behold, your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. Your king comes to you humble. That's the irony. Kingship of humility, a humble king. Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom. He's come to set up an empire. But this empire just defies what an empire is supposed to be. It's not characterized by aggression and might and coercion and violence as the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom was. It's a kingdom that's coming on the back of a donkey. It's a kingdom that's riding into Passover on a donkey. It's just the most ironic thing imaginable. It's a kingdom, if you've read Mark so far, that's coming about through compassion, kindness, charity, generosity, and love. And Jesus is coming to set up this kingdom and to overthrow the empire. He's coming to bring about a great victory, but not a victory at the end of a sword. A victory of love, a revolution of loving, a revolution of grace, and an outpouring of mercy and kindness and goodness. It's a movement of pouring oneself out for the sake of others, not by achieving peace at the end of a sword. That's the upside-down nature of the kingdom. It's a completely subversive kingdom that just turns everything a kingdom's supposed to be, everything an empire is supposed to be, completely on its head and drives home a completely different set of values and priorities and virtues. And imagine what impact this would have had on these Roman soldiers lining the road. See it from their perspective for a moment. Here they are guarding the peace, dressed in the full Roman get-up, which is quite intimidating, except they still wore those skirts, you know. I never <laughs> figured that out. didn't seem particularly intimidating. But they had the swords, you know. There they are, ready to pounce if anyone gets out of control. And then this guy rides in on a donkey. And what do they think of this? You know, I mean, you can't, you can't arrest the guy. It's, he's not exactly disturbing the peace. He's hardly a threat to the empire, is he? What's he going to do, bite you with his donkey? It's, it's very unthreatening. But at the same time, I imagine perhaps they did get the sense that they were being gently mocked by this. It's kind of like that protester in Tiananmen Square that stood up against a whole line of, of tanks. One man. Of course, he had no show against this might of these military tanks, and that was precisely the point. That one act of non-violent resistance just held up to ridicule the power, the might, the aggression, the violence of a regime, of an empire. And I think that's part of what Jesus is doing. By his lowliness, by his weakness, he's actually gently making a spectacle of the violence, of just the power grabbing and the mercilessness of the Roman Empire and demonstrating a completely subversive, creative, imaginative, prophetic way of introducing this kingdom. He's going to the heart of an empire and demonstrating a spirit completely the opposite of the empire that existed in his day. Shane Claiborne, in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, tells a story of an event that he and a few of his friends threw uh, in New York a few years ago. He's part of an organization called The Simple Way in the States, kind of like a church organization, very simple, as the name suggests. And this organization got $10,000 donated to them. So they sent out this $10,000 to 100 different organizations and asked them to bring back the money they'd been given in the smallest units of currency that they could break it down to, the smallest denominations, coinage, uh, small notes, that kind of thing, to bring it back to the square outside the New York Stock Exchange on a particular day at a particular time. And so this day arrived, and the idea was that they were going to throw, in the middle of Wall Street, outside the stock exchange, 
what they called a jubilee party. And this was taken from the ancient uh, practice in Leviticus of jubilee. The year of jubilee came around every 50 years when debts were forgiven and slaves were released and property was returned to its rightful owner. It was a year of generosity. It was a year of incredible charity. And they said, we're going to throw a jubilee party on Wall Street. So on this day, it was the middle of the, the working week, about 8.30 in the morning, and people just began slowly filtering in to the square. And they had done it so that you could never really tell if it was an organized thing. Some people were dressed as businessmen. Some people were dressed as homeless people. Some people were dressed as street cleaners and all, all kinds of things. And they would line the balconies of buildings around the square and they would fill the square itself. And every one of them was carrying stacks of cash, briefcases just full of coins, backpacks full of cash, coffee cups full of money, street dustpans full of money. And they would just subtly file in. And then at a particular time when everyone was there, Shane Claiborne stood up and he said these words. Some of us have worked on Wall Street and some of us have slept on Wall Street. We are a community of struggle. Some of us are rich people trying to escape our loneliness. Some of us are poor folks trying to escape the cold. Some of us are addicted to drugs and others are addicted to money. We are a broken people who need each other and God. For we have come to recognize the mess that we have created of our world and how deeply we suffer from that mess. Now we are working together to give birth to a new society within the shell of the old. Another world is possible. Another world is necessary. Another world is already here. And with that, this woman blew a huge ram's horn, which was the ancient way of starting the uh, year of Jubilee. And these people carrying these stacks of cash just threw it all over everybody in this entire square, from these balconies around the square outside the New York Stock Exchange. Backpacks and briefcases full of cash were released and came raining down on people all over the area. $100 bills floating through the air, coins dropping. That would have been quite sore, I imagine, but coins dropping through the air on people's heads. Homeless people immediately started gathering around, picking up this money. And this incredible act of irony, right in the heart of an empire, right outside the New York Stock Exchange, characterized you know, so much by the greed of people clambering for more and more wealth. Here's a group of people giving money away. Here is a group of people being completely subversive. Here is a group of people being completely generous and seeking to give back some of what God has given them. This gets at the heart of what Jesus is doing, riding a donkey into Passover, going to the heart of an empire and doing something subversive in the face of another. Because the reality is you and I live in the shadow of an empire. Even today, it's not a world system of government anymore. But there are, the Bible simply calls it the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of this world. And there are many different kingdoms, the kingdoms of consumerism, the kingdoms of materialism that keep telling us the way to personal fulfillment and happiness is to accumulate more and more wealth, to earn more and more money. That's how we're going to be satisfied. And happiness always seems to be this elusive goal that's just out of reach. The empire of individualism that tells us it's your rights and my rights that are paramount. It's my autonomy and your autonomy that we need to stand up for our freedoms and continue to defend those. And in the midst of these kingdoms, in the midst of these empires, Jesus came to set up another kingdom. Because we are everywhere reminded of the empire in which we live. 
Just as in the first century, if you were a Jew, you were everywhere reminded that Rome was in charge. You go outside your house, you see inscriptions to Caesar. You see shrines to Caesar. You get a coin out of your pocket. It says, Curios Caesar. Caesar is Lord. You can't get away from the fact. That's how an empire works. It convinces you in a million different ways that no other possible alternative is imaginable. And even today, we, we, we drive to work and can barely make the journey without seeing a billboard, an advertisement, a media message convincing us that we need more, we aren't happy, our needs aren't met, and if we can just accumulate this next thing, make a bit more money, achieve this, keep up with the general lifestyle level of the populace, middle class New Zealand, then we'll be happy. The empire keeps us imagining that this is all there is. It's just like you've ever felt you're just a cog in this huge machine that's going on. There's no Wizard of Oz in the background driving the whole thing. There's no conspiracy theory. It's just a great system of consumerism that has built itself up and now just sucks us in and numbs our imaginations so that we fail to believe that another world really is possible. And Jesus rides a donkey into Passover, into the middle of that kingdom, and begins to set up a new world, even in the shell of the old world. And it's not a private kingdom. Sometimes you think of the kingdom as just this thing in your heart or my heart, just this kingdom that's a spiritual kingdom, doesn't really have anything to do with this world. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is a very public kingdom. It's a kingdom that he came to set up on Wall Street and Queen Street in boardrooms and courtrooms and lecture rooms and classrooms and living rooms all around the country, all around the world. It is a completely subversive way of living and of being in the world. It is a way of overturning the values and the virtues of the empire, turning them on their head. It's not about retreating from the world and sticking our heads in the sand, as some Jews were doing in Jesus' day. Neither is it about simply matching might for might and shaking our fist at the darkness, cursing the darkness, or becoming aggressive and becoming militant. It's not about that either. It's not about those Jews who were just waving the palm branches and just cursing Rome and just asserting their own pride in the face of it. Instead, it is the subtle third way of Jesus, riding a donkey into Passover, being ironic, being creative, doing something different, doing something subversive, doing something that finds one of the values of the empire in which we live and flipping it on its head where the empire practices the myth of getting more and more and more and more and more, we fight for simplicity. And we fight for, for, for a simple existence. And where the empire is concerned constantly with upward mobility, we pursue downward mobility. Have you ever given something away? Given away money? Given away something? Not, not junk that you don't want, but something that you really did want, but actually give to something. It's an incredibly freeing experience. And it also shows you just what a grip you have on your own finances and your own possessions and how much we've been drawn into this empire. We've been drawn into this kingdom of the world that convinces us we have to defend our stuff with everything that we've got and keep such a tight grip on it. But the kingdom of Jesus calls us to pour ourselves out for the other, calls us to give away, calls us to fight for an unhurried and a simple life a simple existence. It calls us to demonstrate a different spirit in the face of the world, where, where the world stands on individual rights and casts blame and seeks vengeance and seeks to justify the self. The kingdom of the world seeks vindication. The kingdom of heaven seeks vindication only from God. It listens only to him and seeks only his approval. It's been great this year hearing these testimonies that have come through in some high-profile 
uh, stories, tragedies that have happened of Christians who have embodied a different spirit. You think of the families of those students who died in the river tragedy earlier in the year. Not looking to blame people. Yes, there are questions to be answered, but not going on this witch hunt. Not looking for a scapegoat. Not trying to play, play, play the blame game. You think of the wife of Austin Hemmings, who says, I know I need to forgive. Maybe not right now, because it's incredibly hard, but I know I need to go there eventually. That's a different spirit. That's riding a donkey into Passover. That's a different way of, of acting and being in the world than the empire is used to. And you get flack for it. These people have got flack from it. On talkback shows, others have said, you need to be angry, you need to be blaming, you need to be seeking vengeance. Because when the light comes into the darkness, the darkness doesn't understand it. The darkness can't comprehend it. That's why the cross is a scandal. That's why Paul says the cross is foolishness. It's idiotic to people that are perishing because they can't see. It's like shining a flashlight in someone's eyes who's only accustomed to darkness. It can be blinding. But this is the way of the kingdom. It is by showing people something categorically different from the kingdoms of the world that we live in and move in every day of our life. Not through simply just swimming along with the tide, but through swimming upstream, doing something different, being subversive. And it doesn't have to be big events. It doesn't have to be through throwing a jubilee party on Wall Street. It doesn't have to be high-profile media stuff. It can be through the simplicity of pursuing a life that doesn't constantly clamor after the next thing and the next thing, and the next thing. Anna and I learned some of this when we were living in the States, and not by any virtue of ourselves, we were kind of forced into it, but it was so freeing for a couple of years to be completely dependent on the generosity of others. And we really were. I mean, we weren't earning. So our house was furnished by the generosity of another church. And you're living in stuff that people have given you or donated to you. We didn't have a lot of our own money or resources, and just for a while to be outside of the whole empire of consumerism is really liberating. Just to look back on it and see how trapped we are by it, see how sucked in we are by it. It's an incredibly freeing thing. And to step outside of that, even for a period of time. And you need to be prepared that when you take these steps, when we do these things and we pursue these values, people are going to look differently at you. People aren't going to understand it, and they're not always going to respect it. Remember where that journey of Jesus ended. He rode a donkey into Passover, and a week later it led him to the cross. Which is really standing as the most ironic act in the entire scriptures. A king taking his throne on a cross. The kingdom coming by being conquered by an empire. And that's the subversive nature of the kingdom. That's the upside-down, back-to-front nature of the kingdom. That's the kingdom that we've been called to participate in. That's the kingdom that we've been called to be agents of bringing into this world, going to the heart of an empire and living ironic lives, finding something that the empire values and flowing in a different direction, cutting against the grain, where the empire says, blame and judge, we exercise love and forgiveness, where the empire says, consume, we give away, where the empire says self, we say others. Constantly, we are a counterpoint. This is what the church is called to be, a counterpoint to the kingdom of the world. And it's not just about not drinking and cheating and swearing. It's not just about what we stand against. It is about what we stand for, a revolution of love, a revolution of grace and of mercy and of loving the unlovable and loving the outcasts whom the empire has rejected. 
those who find themselves on the bottom rung of the ladder. It's the church that takes them in and loves them and embodies the spirit of Jesus. In the musical Les Miserables, there's a great scene between a priest and a convict. The convict comes to the home of the priest. Uh, he's already in trouble with the law. He's a pretty unsavory character, but the priest takes him in, gives him a bed, gives him a meal, treats him with respect and with dignity. And even after that, the convict in, in, in the dark of the night gets up and steals the silverware from the priest and takes off. The next day he's apprehended by the authorities and he's dragged back to the home of the priest for verification that this was the man who stole your silverware. And the priest says to him, looks the convict in the eye and says, I'm so pleased to see you because you forgot to take the candlesticks. <laughs> and he goes and gets his prized candlesticks and gives them to the convict and says, there you go. Now you've got the candlesticks to go with the silverware. Off you go. And of course the authorities are standing there absolutely perplexed, don't know what's going on, and the convict is just overwhelmed, and this is the spirit of the kingdom. This is the irony of the kingdom. These are the lives that we're called to lead. They don't really make sense. They raise maybe more questions than they answer, but sometimes this is simply the way of love. It's the way of the kingdom. It's the way of Jesus. Shall we pray?